Hello, and once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for our first participation trophy of our sports bracket. We are finished with the sports bracket, more or less. The, the actual match of the sports bracket. Yeah. Everything at this point is just icing. Yeah. We might decide that one movie is better than the other for these episodes, but these are just kind of ones we want to talk about. Ones that were fun. Ones that seemed fun at or, the time. <laughs> or at least a way to decompress. Yeah. So, for this week's episode, we have 2007's Balls of Fury, our ping pong movie, as well as 2002's Men with Brooms, our curling movie. Yep. I'd never seen Balls of Fury. I'd never heard of Men with Brooms until you brought it up. And even then, I forgot it existed several times. That's about where I was. During the initial bracketeering research for this, I found Men with Brooms. I'm like, wait, there's an R-rated curling movie? I need to see that. We're going to get into that later, but in case we spoil any of it during this conversation, go watch it. It's great. I had a really fun time. It has Leslie Nielsen. It has mysticism about Canada. It has lesbians. There's space travel. It's definitely our kind of weird, so if you line up with that, you'll probably enjoy it. But we're not talking about the cat. We're probably going to start with Balls of Fury, unfortunately. Why don't you go ahead and give us a brief summary of the plot? I can give you a lot of reasons why not to. (laughs) Reggie Daytona is a ping pong prodigy, but his father gambles a lot of money on his big championship match, but he loses. And his father, now not being able to pay money for the triads, is taken away and killed by Fang, a mysterious triad man. 17 years later, Randy Daytona is doing nothing much with his life until an agent from the FBI, CIA, a guy in a suit with a badge is like, hey, we're trying to take down this leader of the triads. He's super into ping pong. He's throwing a ping pong tournament. And we're going to have you ping pong really good until he invites you. And then you're going to sneak us in and we're going to take him down. And Randy's like, that sounds like a really bad idea. They're like, whatever, that's the plot now. (laughs) To get him ready, they have him train under Master Wong, a blind ping pong master. And between him and his niece, uh, Maggie Wong, a incredible ping pong prodigy who really should have been picked for this mission instead, uh, they get him, I guess, all trained up. And he manages to defeat the dragon, a nine-year-old who has a lot of sway in the underground ping-pong world, which earns him an invitation to Fang's tournaments. They arrive and meet a lot of other ping-pong masters and are arranged into a sudden death tournaments. Literally. Aisha Tyler is there to kill anybody who loses their match. Via blowgun. Via blowgun. No one knows what Aisha Tyler is doing here. They manage to whittle things down, and the final match comes down to Randy Daytona and Carl Wustag, the guy who defeated him the first time and led to his father's death. And then they just kill that guy. It's just, there's no actual resolution for that plot. Then Randy and Fang have a ping pong off to the death uh, with, I guess, low-level mech suits that electrocute you every time you lose a point. Yes. And then they blow up the base and rescue a bunch of sex slaves. It's fine. And then Maggie settles. (laughs) A shorter plot summary that will probably give you a pretty good idea of what this movie is like. Imagine Blades of Glory meets Surf Ninjas. Yeah. Or imagine any given martial arts tournament movie, but it's ping pong. Which, broad strokes, that's a great concept. I am all for, what if any stock movie trope, but it's an incredibly silly thing like ping pong or checkers or whatever. That can be fun. It's just, this is done in a really ugly, icky way. And a lot of the humor comes from gross stuff with its Asian characters and Asian trappings and... 
Yeah, it, it's not it's not fun. The film doubles down on it so much that there's no way to salvage it. It's just really off-color jokes about people of Asian descent for a good chunk of the movie. Mm-hmm. It also has some really unfortunate jokes at the expense of the blind. Yeah, is Master Wong on screen? There's probably gonna be a blind joke. Usually, mostly just him walking into something or whatnot. Or him making a dramatic speech and then someone cutting out attention by turning him 90 degrees to point at the right person. Yes. It's gross, it's shitty, it's kind of what I expected Blades of Glory to be. And it's shocked to me to be like, oh yeah, it's Blades of Glory, that much more nuanced raunchy sports comedy. Mm-hmm. This film doesn't even do better in regards to male-male relationships. <laughs> Yeah. After the first day of the tournament, Randy is seen to his accommodations and he is offered a courtesan to spend the evening with. He's trying to be coy about it, but yeah, he wants to have sex with someone. Uh, Then it turns out all of the courtesans are male. Mm -hmm. They are fully prepared to satisfy each and every one of your desires. My desires are pretty much all satisfied up right now. So I'm, I'm good. You must choose one. And are not here voluntarily. Yeah. And you can kind of understand how that all goes down. It could have been better. The courtesan that is going to be staying in Randy's room is played by Diedrich Baker. You may know him from the Drew Carey show or the voice of Haas Delgado from Billy and Mandy. And they wound up just playing Boggle all night. I think if it hadn't been done with these like really uncomfortable homophobic undertones and, of course, the sex slave stuff, which gross as fuck what the fuck movie it could have been actually a really funny charming scene yeah if it was just all the courtesans are guys and like randy's just like picks just one at random and like there's kind of an awkward silence and then he just brings up you want to play boggle and then cut to the next morning where they're like great friends after a night of boggle yeah like that could have been really fun but that would have required the movie to have like energy and to not drag out every joke to about 18,000 times longer than it needs to be. Yeah, that's another huge problem with this movie is pacing. It doesn't give the important bits the time they need. Like, there's absolutely no reason for Maggie to move from hating Randy's guts to literally trying to jump his bones. Well, the reason is that he's a white male protagonist in a movie about Asian people. Yes. But, but there's no, like, in-story reason. It no. just, that's what we expect from this sort of film, so that's what has to happen. But they spend so much time dragging out these very unfunny jokes. Mm-hmm. And it's weird that there's a fairly, you know, like, good 10, 15, 20 minutes of, like, Randy being trained by people, but he doesn't actually improve. It's not like he gets better. There's just joke scene setups that go on for a little bit, go on for a bit too long, and then we go to the next one, and there's no actual, like, improvements that you can see. Mm-hmm. It's not like he impresses her with his ping pong skills. And she's like, ah, ping pong really gets me going. Which, honestly, there would be a way to do that that would be funny. If it just went over the top, it might have been kind of fun. They don't even make a comment like, oh, I just like need to shake the rust off because he hasn't played in 17 years or whatnot. It's literally like he comes in and is awful and then never really improves and like, oh, well, it's time for you to face the dragon. Mm-hmm. There's a bit where I was like, You are halfway through your training. Farther than Fang ever made is. In case uh, we haven't mentioned, uh, Fang is played by Christopher Walken. Yes. Yeah. While that whole character is dodgy, Christopher Walken is having a great time because Christopher Walken is never not having a great time. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not sure if Christopher Walken makes it better that a person of Asian descent didn't have to play that character or not. Like, I have no idea. I I think there's no winning here. It's, it's just all bad. <laughs> yeah. That said, I will say, there are a number of ways to describe his outfits, and they are all very good. <laughs> uh, your favorite was... Does he still dress as if he shops at Elton John's garage sale? And mine was right before that where I said it looks like he's Baz Luhrmann's Dracula. <laughs> uh, the costume design for this character was not the problem with this movie. No. Speaking of people who are having a good time, Aisha Tyler is here, and she has no idea why she's here, but she's just going to enjoy herself. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself, and I'm very intrigued, and oh my, this soup's delicious, isn't it? So this film is kind of this crossing point of people whose careers are kind of starting to sundown and people who are like trying to get more clout within the film industry. Mm -hmm. So you have people like Christopher Walken and George Lopez and James Hong who are in this, who have like had pretty like solid careers in Hollywood and uh, television. And then you also have Terry Crews and Patton Oswalt. And Aisha Tyler in this, who, this is kind of before they started to get big. This is the same year that Ratatouille came out for a context of where Patton Oswalt was at career-wise. Mm-hmm. I'm glad Terry Crews is doing better, just in general. Mm-hmm. There was one bit I thought was really good. So Reggie Daytona's dad was in the military. And it is never established until we see them, but we see that Randy's wearing some dog tags when they are broken and he's very upset about that and you can and you can make the assumption that those are his dad's dog tags he's been wearing them the whole time that's a really good character bit they didn't set it up as, as like a plot point that was going to come up it was just a really good little reveal to give him some depth I will give this film some credit it could occasionally write some characters with some like weight to them that's that's the one time I can't think of any other examples. Yeah, and like on the flip side, for some terrible writing, one of the first scenes with Maggie is her telling off Randy for like being a perv or whatever, and she gets in his face. She shows him up, and then she walks away, and then we get this really male gazy shot that just completely throws out everything she just said. The film doesn't even respect this character. How do you expect the audience to? Mm-hmm. And while technically there are narrative reasons why she couldn't be the one to do the FBI sting thing, because uh, like her dad was murdered by Fang as well. Uh, no, her dad works for Fang. He's his second. Oh, okay, right. There we go. <laughs> she is known to the criminal empire. Uh, mm-hmm. so Rand is an outsider. It's still that really frustrating thing where you have an incredibly competent woman and a deeply useless man being the the focal hero of a comedy. I will give this film credit. There are a few good jokes. Uh, like after Randy beats the dragon in this underground ping ping pong game, all of the people around like start cheering and carry him and they carry him outside and then they toss him in a dumpster. It's It's a great subversion of expectations. It's very funny. Also, definitely every D&D campaign I ever run is going to have a dragon who just chooses to masquerade as a nine-year-old girl who is really good at sports just to mess with people. You were mentioning, like, good character moments. There is also... Uh, this pretty good moment towards the end of the film when he is playing against Klaus. He, like, starts to get some flashbacks and it starts to oscillate between what he's seeing now and what he saw 17 years ago. I thought that was pretty well done, but it would have worked better in a better movie. 
Right. That's how I feel about a lot of the good parts of this movie is I would be more enthusiastic about these if they were in a movie that wasn't making so many mistakes elsewhere. Right. So many huge structural mistakes you basically have to start over at the top. Mm-hmm. But, like, you can tell this movie has some money behind it. I mean, it has some, like, fairly big name. Well, some biggish names. Some, some decent names. Mm-hmm. The shots are generally pretty good. The colors are nice. The, the sets are decent, etc. There is some talent in this movie, but it's buried under the conventions of a genre that really just... Not for this movie, but for a different movie. I once heard it described as, uh, it cannot be Dada. It's too normal to be Dada. It's too shit to be anything else. Ugh. <laughs> uh... Yeah, overall this film was just kind of a slog and disappointing, and we we cherished the few moments of good that this film had, but when your movie is dealing with Asian characters worse than Big Trouble in the Little China, you have a problem. Yeah. I can't remember what exactly was the moment, but there's in my notes just, I, as a gay, am offended. <laughs> I think this sums up my, my feelings about the movie as a whole. I'm sort of gay and offended. Uh, do do we have anything else to say? Not really. Don't watch Balls of Fury. Like, if you're if you really need some sort of like funny raunchy thing to get, to get into, and you're not in the mood for Blades of Glory, watch Holmes and Watson. It has energy at least. Like that's where I'm at. It is worse than Holmes and Watson. And if you want to know how much Jackson hates Holmes and Watson, you can go listen to the Study of Granada episode on it. Link in the description. Let's go ahead and switch gears and talk about Men With Brooms. Yep. And I will once again uh, say, pause, watch this movie. I think it is better knowing nothing going in. It is really fun, and I want people to experience it in the whole. <clears throat> Still here? Cool. So, what movie did everybody just watch? So, Men With Brooms starts off with Donald Foley, a curling coach in Canada, passing away from a heart attack. As we kind of get the character introductions and opening credits, we are hearing his last will and testament. And he wants his rink of curlers to come back together after 10 years of being apart and win the golden broom competition, specifically with the rock that contains his ashes. The team goes through some trials and tribulations. There's some drama with one of the main characters, Chris Cunner, coming back in town after getting cold feet and running away from a wedding with Foley's daughter. Julie. The rink, you know, tries to get into shape. They play against a, another local team of geriatrics, and they get crushed and realize we need a coach. And so Chris Cutter has to reach out to his dad, here played by Leslie Nielsen, for training. They go through the training regimen, they enter into the Golden Broom Tournament, and they lose against Alexander the Juggernaut Yont and his team, who is considered the shoe-in to win. However, it is a double elimination tournament. The team reels from the loss, one of the members drops out, however, their coach comes in to as a fourth and they make it all the way back into the finals against Alexander and the Juggernaut. Unfortunately, the coach, Gordon Cutter, has a heart attack right before the last match, and they're playing a man down. The teammate who left earlier comes back. They finish the match with a phenomenal final shot and win the Golden Broom. And the final shot's difficulty here is 
akin to like turn off your view screen Luke use the force Luke kind of shot yes yeah. but it is honestly the kind of movie where that just fits it's fine mm-hmm. so this movie is rated R but it's not rated R in the same way that like Balls of Fury is mm-hmm. they wanted to use more than one fuck and they were completely reasonable in wanting to do that and there's a few sex scenes although there's no actual nudity Mm-hmm. One of the teammates, uh, Eddie, and his wife are trying to get pregnant and it's just not happening. And of course, they make it at the very end. I guess I guess Donald Foley's spirit had to be free so that a new spirit could enter into the narrative. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of movie. It's fine. To give you a sense for Donald Foley's daughters, uh, Julie and Amy, there's a bit where Julie's co-workers come looking for her and they say like, Hi, I'm Scott Blendick. I'm with the space agency. I'm Amy Foley. I'm with AA. <laughs> that's that's all you need to know about these two characters. Yeah. The other thing you need to know is that Julie and Chris were at one point an item. Chris got cold feet, left. He comes back, and Amy is also interested in, and Julie has very like difficult feelings about it. So there's some sibling rivalry between them for his affections. Mm-hmm. But not in a shitty way and it's like one thing i really like about this movie it's very down to earth for the most part right like there's some weird bits but all the character interactions are reasonable and come from places of like genuine heart as opposed to like we need to be this way for the plot to happen yeah amy is clearly upset about her sister and is not handling it super well but you can tell that she's trying it's not that she is trying to be caustic on purpose it's just that she's had a long shitty life and also she hasn't had a drink in too long and mm-hmm. her dad just died. I think, honestly, the only thing that feels a little weird and just completely unreasonable is the marriage between Linda and Neil. So, God. Linda here is played by uh, Carrie Matchett. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know her as uh, Nate Ford's wife from Leverage. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, go watch Leverage. Mm-hmm. And here she's playing one of the many characters in this narrative that I'm pretty sure is from space. She has this, like, impossibly tight wardrobe and her house is, like, devoid of anything. Like, it has the bare necessities and some children. Yeah. She is the daughter of a late undertaker. Her husband has taken over the business. She is trying to get into the local country club. Their marriage is very bad and she is cheating on him. She's like, <laughs> sorry, that cheating scene is amazing. Uh, stop. Continue. Uh, 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 stop. Depart. She's like a Vulcan. <laughs> yes, yes, that's better. She's a Vulcan, yes. Yeah, she just feels really out of place with everything else going on. And really, Neil's plot is very uninteresting in general. Yeah, I get it. They had four teammates who they all had to have some sort of plot going on with. But with Eddie and his pregnancy dilemmas, it was just kind of like a wacky scene that was self-contained. Whereas with Neil, there's like other stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. Neil and Lennox's girlfriend... Joanne kind of start to hit it off. Lennox isn't really paying attention to her. It, you kind of know from his character that he is a womanizer and most of his relationships only last for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. I think there might have been a line where he mentions that they've been dating, but I really read her as just a hookup who didn't realize she was a hookup. Yeah, I mean, he can't even remember her name. Yeah. Well, I'm not like advocating for infidelity. There's an amazing line where Joanne says, Damn! I could blow a gasket. 
I'm a Gaskin. It's very good. That line would work on me incredibly well. <laughs> uh, uh, this movie also has one of my favorite things, which is corpse humor. Yes. So towards the beginning of the film, as Donald Foley's body is being cremated, there's some problems with the conveyor belt that's leading the casket into the furnace. And... Neil's like tie gets stuck in it and he starts getting pulled into the furnace as well. It seems like a little much, especially because the film hasn't really warmed us up for it yet. Yeah. However, having seen it all the way through, knowing there's a bit where they dump a lone shark in the river, there are some like significant symbolic beavers. Some at least one character goes to slash is from space. <laughs> I realize it's that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Also, Leslie Nielsen is in this in a serious role. When you were a little boy, you were my best friend. I carried you everywhere. I hugged you all the time. Yeah, like he's he's still a little bit comedic, but yeah, he's he's playing this father who is estranged from his son. They haven't really spoken a lot since his wife died and it's really interesting seeing him not in this like ridiculous parody and he he's a pretty good actor like i mean he's had years to build up his chops but he's doing really well i rapidly got to the point where like oh that's a character not oh that's leslie nielsen Mm -hmm. it does help that he has a beard here yeah which separates him from all of his stuff with like naked gun and whatnot Mm -hmm. and while the film is generally not Super gorgeous. It looks like it's, you know, shot about as well as any given, like, Canadian-made TV show. There's a really oddly beautiful shot of him in his medicinal mushroom cave with his underlighting that's kind of odd and mysterious, and I would just, I don't know, I want it as, like, a like a character portrait for, like, a gnome at some point. That is a thing that I will say that this does not happen in Balls of Fury. The, the curling is not as well shot as the ping pong was. Admittedly, ping pong is super easy to shoot, whereas curling is kind of a lot of angles and a lot of things happening to keep track of the plot. There were a few scenes where it was very obvious in Balls of Fury that the ping pong balls were just added in in post. Oh, sure. And I give this film a lot of credit. Like, the all of the curling is, like, practical. Mm, like, yeah. And I think they do a decent job with it. They don't make the curling as exciting as the ping pong in Balls of Fury, but I will take that hit for all of the interesting things they do with characters oh, that sure. Balls of Fury did not bother to try it doesn't help that i don't know curling as a sport so it was harder for me to keep track of it It might have been easier if i had seen any curling beyond like it being on a tv when i was passing although i do appreciate that the film does a pretty decent job of explaining the basic rules of the sport so that people who know nothing can follow along which is not a thing a lot of sports movies do unfortunately yeah i mean some shouldn't have to like you shouldn't have to have football explained to you surely you've been around in america long enough to know how it works Unless you're me. Um, but there's a very good bit during the first curling tr- uh, match where uh, Amy and Julie are explaining it to Joanne, who ha- knows nothing of this world. She's but it, kind of a ditz. Yeah. Um, but I mean, okay. Being a ditz, like, you're not a ditz, you don't know uh, curling. You're just someone who has, like, done other things with your life. Yeah, I'm not saying that she's a ditz because she doesn't know curling. I'm just saying Joanne is a bit of a ditz in general. She is, she's a very sweet ditz. Like, yes. I feel like she and uh, Kelly from Misfits would get on really well. Although so would uh, Julie and Kelly, since Kelly's a fucking rocket scientist. <laughs> I'm a fucking rocket scientist! Uh, anyway, the explanation of how curling works was, was helpful, and I, I got what the goals were, even if it wasn't always super clear what was happening in any given match. Mm-hmm. And they usually do a decent job of explaining it. There's this cool thing where they'll 
have an aerial shot with just an arrow drawn on. Yeah, we get these. We get scenes of the actual color commentators talking about how difficult a shot is and what what they think the teams are planning on doing, which is really interesting. And again, not something that we see in a lot of other sports movies, at least the ones we've watched for the bracket. That said, the commentators are not like I was underwhelmed with them. They could have done more with that humor. Like they're no, they're no Rob Riggle and Joe Tessitore. <laughs> From holy moly! From holy moly! <laughs> The extreme mini golfing show you should all be watching on Hulu. Yeah, I. The household has become fans of Holy Moly, um, in part due to us doing the sports bracket, but also in part to it being ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I just have a shove written in my notes because there's a very good bit to establish who, how, where Julie's at emotionally. There's a bit where she's quietly contemplating her wedding dress. Then Chris comes downstairs and he just shoves it into the closet and tries to like shove the door closed and it's very good physical comedy that comes out of nowhere and it's really funny. Oh yeah, and it tells you so much about her as a character, their relationship, and where that's all at. It's very, very good shorthand. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the curling and the championship is the B plot and the A plot is really Chris Cutter coming back to Long Bay and dealing with his past, both with Julie, with his dad, and the now this new thing with Amy. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also uh, how the reason he left was because he facilitated cheating in a match a while back. Yeah, he, yeah. he did a dishonorable thing and felt that, you know, I don't deserve any of this, I need to leave. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of ties in more with, like, the curling, because there's a point during their match, their first match with the Juggernaut, so if someone happens to touch the stone after it's been released by who's ever throwing it, then it's called a touchstone and like that's against the rules and they facil- they adjudicate what should be done about it, um, whether like they reset and do it or whatnot. So there's a touchstone during that first match and Chris doesn't call it and his dad gets super upset with him mm. and Leslie Nielsen acts and you're like, oh shit. And he cheats, and then they still lose anyway. Mm-hmm. We then get another uh, another scene where there's a touchstone in the final match against the Juggernaut again. He calls it this time. The enemy team gets to decide how it gets adjudicated, and they're like, reset, have him take the shot again. And that was like a winning shot if they had just let it stand. And so they set everything up, and they pull off it. Rather than tying the game it was with the first shot, the second shot, they do something even more incredible, bust apart one of the stones, and win the match. The whole, like, reset thing is a good, like, wiping a slate clean thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the whole, like, busting through is kind of like, you now longer have all these obstacles you can just go through to success. It's a really good, like, way to bring in the, the meta of what's happening with these characters and the literal with what's happening with these characters. Yeah. Also, um, their antagonist, uh, the Juggernaut, is very honorable there. I like that. I like it when antagonists in sports movies aren't bad guys. They're just other people who play the sport. Yeah. Here, the Juggernaut is played by Greg Burke. You may know him as Carlisle from Bitten. If you've seen that, that's where I know him from. Mm-hmm. We haven't really talked much about Amy, and Amy is probably the best character in this movie. Amy's so good. She's played by um, Lady Summerisle Mo- from The Wicker Man. Molly Parker. Molly Parker, yes. That's what I said. <laughs> 
<laughs> she's just this very interesting, nuanced character. She, like, Chris comes back into town and she wants for him to get reintegrated. She wants to, like, wipe, wipe the slate clean, partially because she is interested in him romantically, but also that's just the kind of person that she is. Mm-hmm. And there's tension between her and Julie about that, as well as, like, the the feelings regarding Chris Cutter but she also is a little bit complicated because she is a recovering alcoholic she has a uh, young son and the dad is not in the picture and she also just lost her dad Mm -hmm. I think it would have been easy to have a lot of missteps with this character but she managed to bring a lot of real pathos and heart without making the character seem like someone you're supposed to weep for She's neither too acerbic nor too melancholic to... Amy feels a lot like Lily Braden from Slapshot if they had gotten her, like, correct. Honestly, a lot of this feels like Slapshot, but if it had been done by more talented people. Yeah, you got the kind of offbeat humor. You've got the, like... Struggling struggling small town. Struggling small town, the team coming together. Yeah, and, like, dealing with dishonor for their actions and whatnot... Honestly, a good way to describe this film is like Slapshot meets The Big Lebowski. Yeah, but with, I think, a little more heart than either of those movies have. Yes. Yeah. Oh, this is also one of the few films on our bracket that has very clear queer representation. Oh, yeah. Basically, the, the vibe I got is like she's the only cop in town, basically. There's probably others, but she's the, like the kind of the one cop. And she and uh, the waitress at the local diner have a cute little romance. Mm-hmm. It culminates after the uh, team wins the golden broom and they, they you see them in the stands kissing. Mm-hmm. I will say if this movie was, was something more critical of, I would probably say we don't really need those characters. They don't really serve the plot much. But they're still pleasant. They're still fun. And casual queer representation, yay. And also of middle-aged queer women. They're, they're not like, you know, hot lesbian babes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, you know, like middle-aged queer ladies on ice. Well, they're never on ice. Near ice. Lesbians adjacent to ice. (laughs) (laughs) One criticism I do have of the film. One is there are some pacing issues around the last third of it. It feels kind of like it's struggling to get to where it needs to go. It Mm. eventually gets there, but it it feels a little long. The other is during the opening scenes of the film, there's a lot of weird cuts where who's ever talking, we're seeing like the back of their head or they're off screen and we're watching the person that they're talking to and it feels like for whatever reason there was something where they had to overdub a lot of it yeah this movie's been poorly dubbed from canadian <laughs> it's ontario not quebec <laughs> <laughs> it's odd and i i was probably part, was part of the budget like this movie does not have a high budget hence the clearly cgi beavers well some of the beavers are clearly cgi some of them are real beavers <laughs> During the credits, there's some outtakes with the the actors around, like, a group of beavers, and it's very good. Trying to herd the beavers with their curling brooms. (laughs) It is very good. Yeah. We keep mentioning the beavers, not explaining them, and the film does the same thing, so we don't have to. (laughs) We aren't really in competition, and also, I think it should be pretty clear which one we think is stronger, but let's do the extra innings anyway for the funsies. Yeah. So we have best training gimmick and best training montage. I think I have to give best training montage to Balls of Fury just because it is more interestingly shot than any of the training montages for Men with Brooms. Sure, I'm okay with that. Like, and that mostly comes down to budget. They are they can do more dynamic things with their camera and it, do stuff in post. 
Yeah. And it's kind of hard to montage curling because it, it, it's just things going in a straight line. Whereas you can do more dynamic shots with uh, ping pong. Yeah, especially since like curling is, it, it's a more slowly paced sport. It, it's definitely one of the sports that the competitors can drink while doing. Yeah. How about this gimmick? Well, I think the gimmick of I'm putting my ashes in this curling stone, you need to put me on the button and win the golden broom <laughs> is my last will and testament. Get your asses back together. Pretty much. The the gimmick is questionably legal last request. <laughs> um sorry, but we, we, we forgot to mention the the, the someone asked the lawyer, is this legally binding? It's like, oh no, definitely not. But, but morally, morally. <laughs> Marvin, this can't be legally binding. Oh, no, 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 no. But morally. <laughs> uh, uh, very he's good. He's an agent of chaos. And then from Balls of Fury, we have the, like, I need you to take down the leader of the Chinese triad via oh, ping pong. I guess that is kind of the gimmick. But I was going to say that the gimmick is learning ping pong by being locked in a room with a box full of live bees. Swatting flies now? You will not hit flies. You hit bees. What? <laughs> that is also a very good training gimmick. <laughs> However, I don't think they do it very well. Like, it is a great concept they don't really play with as much as they should have, so I'm going to give it to um, questionably legal last remains. That's kind of the thing with Balls of Fury, is they have so many jokes, and they they can't prioritize them, so they just give equal weight to all of them. Yeah. Whereas Man of the Broom is, you know... Has a really, a really strong hook. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so I think that concludes our first episode of Participation Trophies. I'm really disappointed that one of these was a dud. Yeah. I mean, I didn't expect it to be great, but I think it would be l- less bad, I guess. Yeah. The, the reason this went up here is because I saw a few of our uh, fans talking about it on Facebook when we an- first announced the bracket. So I blame you. Our next bracket is a monster movie bracket. I'm really worried we're going to get just a lot of, like, you should watch this terrible horror movie. Yeah, that concludes this episode. What do we have coming up next week? We have what I'm inexplicably referring to as the Night Speed Rescue episode. Uh, it is A Nice Tale versus Speed Racer. Oh, boy. <laughs> and we're going to have a special guest, Mike Knoll, who is a huge Speed Racer aficionado. And also you, who have seen the cartoon. Yes. And also, uh, I guess I've read Canterbury Tales. That helps. So you can be sure to tune into that next week. If you want to be sure to know when that episode goes live, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, and Spotify. But until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.